This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. Podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Eli, Nicole Brown, Taryn, Deborah Schechter, Jess Robinson, and Jojo DeVito. Thank you all so, so, so much for being a part of making this show. For anyone who doesn't know, the names I just read, they're all supporters of the show on a website called Patreon. Basically, you can go to patreon.com slash sleepyradio and donate even a little bit to the show each month. It's a site where there's all kinds of amazing artists, and if you like them, you can pledge a little bit, and in return you get to be part of making that work that you love so much. Even if you went on and pledged a dollar, that's amazing, and it goes a long way. Five dollars gets you access to this special Patreon poetry feed, 
where I read poetry and send it right to you twice a month just for donating. If you want to hear what that sounds like, I've posted an episode of Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman. It's episode 26 on this feed. So, if the show works for you, and you want to support a freelance radio producer, then just go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thanks, everyone. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy was illustrated by Gracie Kanan. I mentioned in the last episode that I'm currently back home in Vermont. It's amazing. I also mentioned I've been doing a lot of fireside reading as we've had a lot of storms and the power's been going out. Yeah, it gets a little cold, but I probably read more in the last couple weeks than I ever have. So tonight, we're going to read a book that I think is just absolutely exquisite fireside reading. It's Dubliners by James Joyce. So, get comfy, fix up your pillow just how you like it, feel yourself melt into your bed, close your eyes, and let me read to you. The Sisters There was no hope for him this time. It was the third stroke. Night after night, I had passed the house. It was vacation time, and studied the lighted square of the window. And night after night, I had found it lighted in the same way, faintly and evenly. If he was dead, I thought, I would see the reflection of candles on the darkened blind, for I knew that two candles must be set at the head of a corpse. He'd often said to me, I am not long for this world, and I had thought his words idle. Now, I knew they were true. Every night, as I gazed up at the window, I said softly to myself the word paralysis. It always sounded strangely in my ears, like the word nomen in the Euclid and the word simony in the catechism. But now, it sounded to me like the name of some maleficent and sinful being. It filled me with fear, and yet I longed to be nearer to it and to look upon its deadly work. Old Cotter was sitting at the fire smoking when I came downstairs to supper. While my aunt was ladling out my stirabout, he said, as if returning to some former remark of his, No. I wouldn't say it was exactly, but there was something queer. There was something uncanny about him. I'll tell you my opinion. He began to puff at his pipe, no doubt arranging his opinion in his mind. Tiresome old fool. When we knew him first, he used to be rather interesting, talking of faints and worms, but I soon grew tired of him and his endless stories about the distillery. I have my own theory about it, he said. I think it was one of those peculiar cases. It's hard to say. He began to puff again at his pipe without giving us his theory. My uncle saw me staring and said to me, Well, so your friend is gone. You'll be sorry to hear. Who? said I. Father Flynn, is he dead? Mr. Cotter here has just told us he was passing by the house. I knew that I was under observation, so I continued eating as if the news had not interested me. My uncle explained to old Cotter. The youngster and he were great friends. The old chap taught him a great deal, mind you, and they said that he had a great wish for him. God have mercy on his soul, said my aunt piously. Old Cotter looked at me for a while 
I felt that his little beady black eyes were examining me, but I would not satisfy him by looking up from my plate. He returned to his pipe and finally spat rudely into the grate. I wouldn't like children of mine, he said, to have too much to say to a man like that. How do you mean, Mr. Cotter? asked my aunt. What I mean is, said old Cotter, it's bad for children. My idea is, let a young lad run about and play with young lads of his own age and not be... Am I right, Jack? That's my principle, too, said my uncle. Let him learn to box his corner. That's what I'm always saying to that Ross Escrucian there. Take exercise. Why? When I was a nipper every morning of my life, I had a cold bath, winter, and summer. And that's what stands to me now. Education is all very fine and large. Mr. Cotter might take a pick of that leg of mutton, he added to my aunt. No, no, not for me, said old Cotter. My aunt brought the dish from the safe and put it on the table. But why do you think it's not good for children, Mr. Cotter, she asked. It's bad for children, said old Cotter, because their minds are so impressionable. When children see things like that, you know, it has an effect. I crammed my mouth with a stirabout for fear I might give utterance to my anger. Tiresome old red-nosed imbecile. It was late when I fell asleep, though I was angry with old Cotter for alluding to me as a child. I puzzled my head to extract meaning from his unfinished sentences. In the dark of my room, I imagined that I saw again the heavy gray face of the paralytic. I drew the blankets over my head and tried to think of Christmas. But the gray face still followed me. It murmured, and I understood that it desired to confess something. I felt my soul receding into some pleasant and vicious region, and there again I found it waiting for me. It began to confess to me in a murmuring voice, and I wondered why it smiled continually why the lips were so moist with spittle. And then, I remember that it had died of paralysis, and I felt that I, too, was smiling feebly, as if to absolve the simoniac of its sin. The next morning after breakfast, I went down to look at the little house in Great Britain Street. It was an unassuming shop, registered under the vague name of Drapery. The drapery consisted mainly of children's booties and umbrellas, and in ordinary days a notice used to hang in the window saying, Umbrellas Recovered. No notice was visible, now that the shutters were up. A crepe bouquet was tied to the door knocker with a ribbon. Two poor women and a telegram boy were reading the card pinned to the crepe. I also approached and read, July 1st, 1895, the Reverend James Flynn, formerly of St. Catherine's Church, Meath Street, age 65 years, R.I.P. The reading of the card persuaded me that he was dead. I was disturbed to find myself a check. Had he not been dead, I would have gone into a little dark room behind the shop to find him sitting in his armchair by the fire, nearly smothered in his great coat. Perhaps my aunt would have given me a packet of high toast for him, and this present would have roused him from his stupefied doze. It was always I who emptied the packet into his black snuff box, for his hands trembled too much to allow him to do this without spilling it, half the snuff about the floor. Even as he raised his large, trembling hand to his nose, little clouds of smoke dribbled through his fingers over the front of his coat. It may have been these constant showers of snuff which gave his ancient, priestly garments their green-faded look with a red handkerchief, blackened, as it always was, with the snuff stains of a week, with which 
he tried to brush away the fallen grains, was quite inefficacious. I wished to go in and look at him, but I had not the courage to knock. I walked away slowly along the sunny side of the street, reading all the theatrical advertisements in the shop windows as I went. I found it strange that neither I nor the day seemed in a morning mood, and I felt even annoyed and discovering in myself a sensation of freedom as if I had been freed from something by his death. I wondered at this for, as my uncle had said the night before, he had taught me a great deal. He had studied in the Irish college in Rome, and he had taught me to pronounce Latin properly. He had told me stories about the catacombs and about Napoleon Bonaparte, and he explained to me the meaning of the different ceremonies of the Mass and of the different vestments worn by the priest. Sometimes he had amused himself by putting difficult questions to me, asking me what one should do in certain circumstances, or whether such and such sins were mortal or venial or only imperfections. His questions showed me how complex and mysterious were certain institutions of the church, which I had always regarded as the simplest acts. The duties of a priest towards the Eucharist and towards the secrecy of the confessional seemed so grave to me that I wondered how anybody had ever found in himself the courage to undertake them. And I was not surprised when he told me that the fathers of the church had written books as thick as the post office directory and as closely printed as the law notices in the newspaper elucidating all these intricate questions. Often, when I thought of this, I could make no answer, or only a very foolish and halting one, upon which he used to smile and nod his head twice or thrice. Sometimes, he used to put me through the responses of the Mass, which he had made me learn by heart, and as I pattered, he used to smile pensively and nod his head, now and then pushing huge pinches of snuff up each nostril alternately. When he smiled, he used to uncover his big, discolored teeth and let his tongue lie upon his lower lip, a habit which had made me feel uneasy in the beginning of our acquaintance before I knew him well. As I walked along in the sun, I remembered old Cotter's words and tried to remember what had happened afterwards in the dream. I remembered that I had noticed long velvet curtains and a swinging lamp of antique fashion. I felt that I had been very far away to some land where the customs were strange. In Persia, I thought, but I could not remember the end of the dream. In the evening, my aunt took me with her to visit the house of the morning. It was after sunset, but the window panes of the houses that looked to the west reflected the tawny gold of the great bank of clouds. Nanny received us in the hall, and, as it would have been unseemly to have shouted at her, my aunt shook hands with her for all. The old woman pointed upwards interrogatively, and, on my aunt's nodding, proceeded to toil to the narrow staircase before us, her bowed head being scarcely above the level of the banister rail. At first landing, she stopped and beckoned us forward encouragingly towards the door of the dead room. My aunt went in, and the old woman, seeing that I hesitated to enter, began to beckon to me again repeatedly with her hand. I went in on tiptoe. The room through the lace end of the blind was suffused with dusky golden light amid which the candles looked like pale thin flames. He had been coffined. Nanny gave the lead and we three knelt down at the bed. I pretended to pray 
and I could not gather my thoughts because the old woman's mutterings distracted me. I noticed how clumsily her skirt was hooked at the back and how the heels of her cloth boots were trodden down all on one side. The fancy came to see me. The old breeze was smiling as he lay there in his coffin. But no. When we rose and went up to the head of the bed, I saw that he was not smiling. There he lay, solemn and copious, vested as for the altar, his large hands loosely retaining a chalice. His face was very truculent, gray and massive, with black cavernous nostrils encircled by a scanty white fur. There was a heavy odor in the room, the flowers. We crossed ourselves and came away. In the little room downstairs we found Eliza seated in his armchair in state. I groped my way towards the usual chair in the corner while Nanny went to the sideboard and brought out a decanter of sherry and some wine glasses. She set these on the table and invited us to take a little glass of wine. Then, at her sister's bidding, she filled out the sherry into the glasses and passed them to us. She pressed me to take some cream crackers also, but I declined because I thought I would make too much noise eating them. She seemed to be somewhat disappointed at my refusal. I went over quietly to the sofa where she sat down behind her sister. No one spoke. We all gazed at the empty fireplace. My aunt waited until Eliza sighed and then said, Ah, well, he's gone to a better world. Eliza sighed again and bowed her head in assent. My aunt fingered the stem of her wine glass before sipping a little. Did he... peacefully? she asked. Oh, quite peacefully, ma'am, said Eliza. You couldn't tell when the breath went out of him. He had a beautiful death. God be praised. And everything. Father O'Rourke was in with him a Tuesday and anointed him and prepared him and all. He knew when. He was quite resigned. He looks quite resigned, said my aunt. That's what the woman we had and to wash him said. She said he just looked as if he was asleep. He looked that peaceful and resigned. No one would think he'd make such a beautiful corpse. Yes, indeed, said my aunt. She sipped a little more from her glass and said, Well, Miss Flynn, at any rate, it must be great comfort for you to know that you did all you could for him. You were both very kind to him, I must say. Eliza smoothed her dress over her knees. Ah, poor James, she said. God knows we done all we could, as poor as we are. We wouldn't see him want anything while he was in it. Nanny had leaned her head against the sofa pillow and seemed about to fall asleep. There's poor Nanny, said Eliza, looking at her. She's wore out. All the work we had, she and me, getting the woman to wash him, and then laying him out, and then the coffin, and then arranging about the mass in the chapel. Only for Father Rourke, I don't know what we'd have done at all. It was him who brought us all the flowers, and then two candlesticks out of the chapel, and wrote out the notice for the Freedmen's General, and took charge of all the papers for the cemetery and poor James's insurance. Wasn't that good of him, said my aunt. Eliza closed her eyes and shook her head slowly. Ah, there's no friends like old friends. When all is said and done, no friends that a body can trust. Indeed, that's true, said my aunt. And I'm sure now that he's gone to his eternal reward, he won't forget you and all your kindness to him. Ah, poor James, said Eliza. He was no great trouble to us. You wouldn't hear him in the house any more than now. 
Still, I know he's gone, and all to that. It's when it's all over that you'll miss him, said my aunt. I know that, said Eliza. I won't be bringing him his cup of beef tea anymore. Nor you, ma'am, sending him his snuff. Ah, poor James. She stopped, as if she were commuting with the past, and then said shrewdly, Mind you, I noticed there was something queer coming over him latterly. Whenever I'd bring him his soup to him, I'd find him, with his breviary fallen to the floor, lying back in the chair and his mouth open. She laid a finger against her nose and frowned. Then she continued. But still, and all he kept saying that, before the summer was over, he'd go out for a drive one day, just to see the old house again, where we were all born in Irish town and take me and Nanny with him. If we could only get one of them new fangled carriages that makes no noise that Father O'Rourke had told him about, then with the rheumatic wheels, for the day, Chief, he said, and Johnny rushes over the way and drive out the three of us together of a Sunday evening. He had his mind set on that. Poor James. The Lord have mercy on his soul, said my aunt. Eliza took out her handkerchief and wiped her eyes with it. Then she put it back again in her pocket and gazed into the empty grate for some time without speaking. He was too scrupulous, always, she said. The duties of priesthood was much too much for him. And then his life was, you might say, crossed. Yes, said my aunt. He was a disappointed man. He could see that. A silence took possession of the little room, under cover of it. I approached the table and tasted my sherry and then returned quietly to my chair in the corner. Eliza seemed to have fallen into a deep reverie. We waited respectfully for her to break the silence. After a long pause, she said slowly, It was that chalice he broke. That was the beginning of it. Of course, they say, it was all right, that it contained nothing. I mean, but still. They say it was the boy's fault. Poor James was so nervous. God be merciful to him. And was that it? Said my aunt. I heard something. Eliza nodded. That affected his mind, she said. After that, he began to mope by himself, talking to no one and wandering about by himself. So one night, he was wanted for to go on a call and they couldn't find him anywhere. They looked high up and low down and still they couldn't see sight of him anywhere. So then a clerk suggested to try the chapel. So then they got the keys and opened the chapel and the clerk and Father O'Rourke and another priest that was there brought in a light for him to look on him. And what do you think there was? sitting up by himself in the dark, in his confession box, wide awake and laughing like softly to himself. She stopped suddenly, as if to listen. I too listened, but there was no sound in the house, and I knew that the old priest was lying still in his coffin as we had seen him, solemn and truculent in death, an idle chalice on his breast. Eliza resumed wide awake and laughing like to himself. So then, of course, when they saw that, that made them think that there was something gone wrong with them. An Encounter It was Joe Dillon who introduced the Wild West to us. He had a little library made up for old numbers of the Union Jack, Pluck, and the halfpenny marvel. Every evening after school, we met in his back garden and arranged Indian battles. He and his fat young brother Leo, the idler, held the loft of the stable 
while we tried to carry it by storm, or we fought a pitched battle on the grass. But however well we fought, we never won siege or battle, and all our bouts ended with Joe Dillon's war dance of victory. His parents went to eight o'clock mass every morning in Gardner Street, and the peaceful odor of Mrs. Dillon was prevalent in the hall of the house. But he played too fiercely for us, who were younger and more timid. He looked like some kind of Indian when he capered round the garden, an old tea cozy on his head, beating a tin with his fist and yelling, Ya, yaka, ya. Everyone was incredulous when it was reported that he had a vocation for the priesthood. Nevertheless, it was true. A spirit of unruliness diffused itself among us, and under its influence, differences of culture and constitution were waived. We banded ourselves together, some boldly, some in jest and some almost in fear, and of the number of these latter, the reluctant Indians who were afraid to seem studious or lacking in robustness, I was one. The adventures related in the literature of the Wild West were remote from my nature, but at least they opened doors of escape. I liked better some American detective stories, which were traversed from time to time by unkept fierce and beautiful girls. Though there was nothing wrong in these stories, and though their intention were sometimes literary, they were circulated secretly in school. One day, when Father Butler was hearing the four pages of Roman history, clumsy Leo Dillon was discovered with a copy of the Halfpenny Marvel. This page or this page? This page? Now, Dillon, up. Hardly had the day. Go on. What day? Hardly had the day dawned. Have you studied it? What have you there in your pocket? Everyone's heart palpitated as Leo Dillon handed up the paper and everyone assumed an innocent face. Father Butler turned over the pages, frowning. What is this rubbish, he said. The Apache chief? Is this what you read instead of studying your Roman history? Let me not find any more of this wretched stuff in this college. The man who wrote it, I suppose, was some wretched fellow who writes these things for a drink. I'm surprised at boys like you, educated, reading such stuff. I could understand it if you were national school boys. Now, Dylan, I advise you strongly. Get at your work, or... This rebuke. During the sober hours of school paled much of the glory of the Wild West for me, and the confused puffy faces of Leo Dillon awakened one of my consciences. But when the restraining influence of the school was at a distance, I began to hunger again for wild sensations, for the escape which those chronicles of disorder alone seemed to offer me. The mimic warfare of the evening became at last as wearisome to me as the routine of school in the morning, because I wanted real adventures to happen to myself. But real adventures, I reflected, do not happen to people who remain at home. They must be sought abroad. The summer holidays were near at hand when I made up my mind to break out of the weariness of school life for one day at least. With Leo Dillon and a boy named Mahoney, I planned a day's meeting. Each of us saved up six pence. We were to meet at ten in the morning on the canal bridge. Mahoney's big sister was to write an excuse for him, and Leo Dillon was to tell his brother to say he was sick. We arranged to go along the wharf road until we came to the ships, then to cross in the ferry boat and walk out to see the pigeon house. Leo Dillon was afraid we might meet Father Butler or someone out of the college. But Mahoney asked, very sensibly, what would Father Butler be doing at the pigeon house? We were reassured, and I brought the first stage of the plot 
to an end by collecting sixpence from the other two, the same time showing them my own sixpence. When we were making the last arrangements on the eve, we were all vaguely excited. We shook hands, laughing, and Mahoney said, Till tomorrow, mates. That night, I slept badly. In the morning, I was first comer to the bridge, as I lived nearest. I hid my books in the long grass near the ash pit at the end of the garden where nobody ever came, and I hurried along to the canal bank. It was a mild, sunny morning in the first week of June. I sat up on the coping of the bridge, admiring my frail canvas shoes which I had diligently pipe-clayed overnight and watching the docile horses pulling a tramp load of business people up the hill. All the branches of the tall trees which lined the mall were gay, with little green leaves and sunlight slanted through them on the water. The granite stone of the bridge was beginning to warm, and I began to pat it with my hands in time to an air with my head. I was very happy. When I had been sitting there for five or ten minutes, I saw Mahoney's gray suit approaching. He came up the hill, smiling, and clambered up beside me on the bridge. While we were waiting, he brought out a catapult, which bulged from his inner pocket, and explained some improvements which he had made on it. I asked him why he had brought it, and he told me he had brought it to have some gas with the birds. Mahoney used slang freely and spoke of Father Butler as old Bunser. We waited on for a quarter of an hour more, but still, there was no sign of Leo Dillon. Mahoney at last jumped down and said, Come along. I knew Fatty'd funk it. And his sixpence, I said. That's forfeit, said Mahoney, and so much the better for us. A bob and a tanner instead of a bob. We walked along the North Strand Road till we came to the Vitriol Works and then turned to the right along the Wharf Road. Mahoney began to play the Indian as soon as we were out in public sight. He chased a crowd of ragged girls, brandishing his unloaded catapult, and when two ragged boys began, out of chivalry, to fling stones at us, he proposed that we should charge them. I objected the boys were too small, and so we walked on, the ragged troop screaming after us, swaddlers, swaddlers, thinking that we were Protestants because Mahoney, who was dark complexion, wore the silver badge of a cricket club in his cap. When we came to the smoothing iron, we arranged a siege, but it was a failure because we must have at least three. We revenged ourselves on Leo Dillon by saying, what a funk he was, and guessing how many he would get at three o'clock from Mr. Ryan. We came then near the river. We spent a long time walking about the noisy streets flanked by high stone walls, watching the working of the cranes and engines, and often being shouted at for immobility by the drivers of groaning carts. It was noon when we reached the quays, and as all the laborers seemed to be eating their lunches, we bought two big currant buns and sat down to eat them on the metal piping beside the river. We pleased ourselves with the spectacle of Dublin's commerce, the barges signaled from far away by their curls of woolly smoke, the brown fishing fleet beyond Ringsend, the big white sailing vessel which was being discharged on the opposite quay. Mahoney said it would be the right skit to run away to sea on one of those big ships, and even I looking at the high mast saw or imagined the geography which had been scantily dosed to me at school, gradually taking substance under my eyes. School and home seemed to recede from us, and their influences upon us seemed to wane. We crossed the Liffey in the ferry boat, paying our toll to be transported in the company of two laborers and a little Jew with a bag. We were serious to the point of solemnity, but once during the short voyage our eyes met, and we laughed. When we landed, we 
We watched the discharging of some graceful three-master, which we had observed from the other quay. Some bystander said that she was a Norwegian vessel. I went to the stern and tried to decipher the legend upon it, but, failing to do so, I came back and examined the foreign sailors to see had any of them green eyes, for I had some confused notion. The sailors' eyes were blue and gray and even black. The only sailor whose eyes could have been called green was a tall man who amused the crowd on the quay by calling out cheerfully every time the planks fell. All right, all right. When we were tired of this sight, we wandered slowly to Ringsen. The day had grown sultry, and the windows of the grocer's shop, musty biscuits lay bleaching. We bought some biscuits and chocolate, which we ate sedulously as we wandered through the squalid streets where the families of the fishermen lived. We could find no dairy, and so we went into a huckster's shop and bought a bottle of raspberry lemonade each. Refreshed by this, Mahoney chased a cat down a lane, but the cat escaped into a wide field. We both felt rather tired, and when we reached the field, we made at once for a sloping bank over the ridge of which we could see the daughter. It was too late, and we were too tired to carry out our project of visiting the pigeon house. We had to be home before four o'clock, lest our adventure should be discovered. Mahoney looked regretfully at his catapult, and I had to suggest going home by train before he regained any cheerfulness. The sun went in behind some clouds and left us to our jaded thoughts and our crumbs of provisions. There was nobody but ourselves in the field. We had lain on the bank for some time without speaking, and I saw a man approaching from the far end of the field. I watched him lazily as I chewed one of those green stems on which girls tell fortunes. He came along by the bank slowly. He walked with one hand upon his hip, and in the other he held a stick with which he tapped the turf lightly. He was shabbily dressed in a suit of greenish black and wore what we used to call a jerry hat with a high crown. He seemed to be fairly old for his mustache. It was ashen gray. When he passed at our feet, he glanced up as quickly and then continued his way. We followed him with our eyes and saw that he had gone on for perhaps fifty paces. He turned about and began to retrace his steps. He walked toward us very slowly, always tapping the ground with his stick. So slowly that I thought he was looking for something in the grass. He stopped when he came level with us and bade us good day. We answered him and he sat down beside us on the slope slowly with great care. He began to talk of the weather, saying that it would be a very hot summer, and adding that the seasons had changed greatly since he was a boy a long time ago. He said that the happiest time of his life was undoubtedly one schoolboy's days, and he would give anything to be young again. While he expressed these sentiments, which bored us a little, we kept silent. Then he began to talk of school and books he asked us whether we had read the poetry of Thomas More or the works of Sir Walter Scott and Lord Lytton. I had pretended that I had read every book he mentioned, so that in the end he said, Ah, I can see you are a bookworm like myself. Now, he added, pointing to Mahoney, who was regarding us with open eyes, he is different. He goes in for games. He said he had all Sir Walter Scott's works, and all Lord Lytton's works at home, never tired of reading of them. Of course, he said, there were some of Lord Lytton's works which boys couldn't read. Mahoney asked why boys couldn't read them, a question which agitated and pained me, because I was afraid the man would think I was as stupid as Mahoney. The man, however, only smiled. I saw that he had great gaps in his mouth, between his yellow teeth. Then he asked us 
which of us had the most sweethearts. Mahoney mentioned lightly that he had three toddies. The man asked me how many I had. I answered I had none. He did not believe me and said he was sure I must have one. I was silent. Tell us, said Mahoney, pertly to the man, how many of you yourself? The man smiled as before and said that when he was our age he had lots of sweethearts. Every boy, he said, has a little sweetheart. His attitude on this point struck me as strangely liberal in a man of his age. In my heart, I thought that what he said about boys and sweethearts was reasonable, but I disliked the words in his mouth, and I wondered why he shivered once or twice, as if he feared something or felt a sudden chill. As he proceeded, I noticed that his accent was good. He began to speak to us about girls, saying what nice soft hair they had and how soft their hands were and how all girls were not so good as they seemed to be if one only knew. There was nothing he liked, he said, so much as looking at a nice young girl, at her nice white hands and her beautiful soft hair. He gave me the impression that he was repeating something which he had learned by heart or that, magnetized by some words of his own speech, his mind was slowly circling round and round in the same orbit. At times he spoke, as if he were simply alluding to some fact that everybody knew, and at times he lowered his voice and spoke mysteriously, as if he were telling us something secret which he did not wish others to overhear. He repeated his phrases over and over again, varying them and surrounding them with his monotonous voice. I continued to gaze towards the foot of the slope, listening to him. After a long while, his monologue paused. He stood up slowly, saying that he had to leave us for a minute or so, a few minutes, and, without changing the direction of my gaze, I saw him walking slowly away from us, towards the near end of the field. We remained silent when he had gone. After a silence of a few minutes, I heard Mahoney exclaim, I say, look what he's doing. As I neither answered nor raised my eyes, Mahoney exclaimed again, I say, he's a queer old josser. In case he asks us for our names, let you be Murphy and I'll be Smith. We said nothing further to each other. I was still considering whether I would go away or not when the man came back and sat down beside us again. Hardly had sat down when Mahoney, catching sight of the cat which had escaped him, sprang up and pursued her across the field. The man and I watched the chase. The cat escaped once more, and Mahoney began to throw stones at the wall she had escalated. Desisting from this, he began to wander about the far end of the field aimlessly, after an interval, the man spoke to me. He said that my friend was a very rough boy and asked did he get whipped often at school. I was going to reply indignantly that we were not national school boys to be whipped, as he called it, but I remained silent. He began to speak on the subject of chastising boys. His mind, as if magnetized again by his speech, seemed to circle slowly round and round its new center. He said that, when boys were that kind, they ought to be whipped and well whipped. When a boy was rough and unruly, there was nothing that would do him any good but a good sound whipping. A slap on the hand or a box on the ear was no good, that he wanted to get a nice warm whipping. I was surprised at this sentiment and voluntarily glanced up at his face. As I did so, I met the gaze of a pair of bottle green eyes peering at me from under a twitching forehead. I turned my eyes away again. The man continued his monologue. He seemed to have forgotten his recent liberalism. He said that if he ever found a boy talking to girls or having a girl for a sweetheart, he would whip him and whip him 
that would teach him not to be talking to girls. And if a boy had a girl for his sweetheart and told lies about it, then he would give him such a whipping as no boy ever got in this world. He said that there was nothing in the world he would like so well as that. He described to me how he would whip such a boy as if he were unfolding some elaborate mystery. He would love that, he said, better than anything in this world. And his voice, as he led me monotonously through the mystery, grew almost affectionate and seemed to plead with me that I should understand him. I waited till his monologue paused again. Then I stood up abruptly, lest I should betray my agitation. I delayed a few moments pretending to fix my shoe properly, and then, saying that I was obliged to go, I bade him good day. I went up the slope calmly, but my heart was beating quickly, with fear that he would seize me by my ankles. When I reached the top of the slope, I turned round, and without looking at him, called loudly across the field, Murphy. My voice had an accent of forced bravery in it, and I was ashamed of my paltry stratagem. I had to call the name again before Mahoney saw me, and hallooed an answer. How my heart beat as he came running across the field to me. He ran as if to bring me aid, and I was penitent, for in my heart I had always despised him a little. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.